Bienvenidos a Radio Menea. I'm Miriam Suela Perez. And I'm Vero Valletti Flores, and we're two Latinx friends with wildly different music tastes. Each week we bring you music from the Latinx artists that we love, and this week and next we're doing a deep dive into the music of Miami. Yeah, we have been doing a little bit of, you know, cities um, that are important to us just personally, but also that are very important to the development of Latin music and mm -hmm. what we think of as Latin sound. And so um, we're hyped to bring you a two-parter on Miami. Yes. So we're going to start, um, I want to go back to the song that we started with and take another listen. And it's actually written by a Dominican. And I'll explain more um, in a second. So let's take a listen to El Son Se Fue de Cuba by Bio Frometa. <laughs> Y en vez de mil canciones, solo hay guiando y soledad. El sol se fue de Cuba, llorando de tristeza. Se ha ido el manicero y también la valla mesa. Guatiro de mi tierra. Si pasas por La Habana, no irás risa cubana, porque el sol se muere allí. Okay, so this episode is starting in the 60s because that's when Miami became a Hispanic city, really, um, because that's when the Cuban Revolution happened, and that's when literally hundreds of thousands of Cubans fled Cuba and um, reestablished themselves in Miami. And so... While there may be Latin music that happened pre-1960, I don't, um, I didn't find any in my research, and so I'm focusing on sort of like the beginning of of Miami and this as this like very um, international city in some ways, and 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 Hispanic dominant city and Spanish dominant city, which it remains today. And so um, the song is by a Dominican, but the lyrics I think very much encapsulate like the nostalgia and the sadness of this post-revolution time for mm. the people who, who left Cuba, right? So, yeah. um, you know, El Son Se Fue de Cuba. Son is, you know, a Cuban music style that is very iconic. And so, you know, the story of this of this song is that he shows up in Havana um, and El Son Se Fue, right? And so it's like, you know, captures, I think, the sense of loss, of all that's gone, you know, and also the revolution, you know, similar to other communist social revolutions, like, 
had a big impact on on culture, on religion, on I mean they did have they allowed music, but it was state it was now state controlled, so you know, it really changed the the industry in a lot of ways. So there was a lot of loss for people in that. But I don't know, Vero, have you heard of this guy because he actually spent a chunk of his career in Venezuela. I don't know that I remember this person's name, but I do know the Caracas boys and I know yeah. that Venezuela was, you know, a big hub of um you know, music industry in like, you know, 50s, 60s, Latin America. Yeah. So, you know, this, this episode, I did the research for this episode, Vero and I have been kind of like taking turns, like doing deeper dives. Like she did the Latin Booms episode. And so, um, you know, this, this episode is also very much about my family history because this is when my family left Cuba and came to Miami. And so in many ways, Miami is like a home to me. It feels like home culturally. I spent summers there as a kid, so I have a, a strong relationship to it. And then the other thing that, you know, I've mentioned my father a lot on this on this podcast, but I don't think I've ever talked about the fact that he's like also a writer and has written a number of books. Um, he's an academic, he's a literature professor, but he's also written a, a number of books about like culture. And so I referenced heavily for this um, episode, a chapter in a book that he has called Life on the Hyphen, The Cuban American Way. Um, and so I'm, I'll put a link in the show notes if people want to check it out. Um, so it was interesting to me to be like engaging with his, his work in this way and like reading this chapter mm-hmm. I, I haven't read before. Um, and then mm-hmm. sort of like retracing some of his steps, but in my own way. Right. So it's like, I'm covering some of the topics he covered, but obviously from my own unique vantage point. Um, and you know, one of the ways in which that, ch- that vantage point is different is like his, his work really stops in the nineties. Like he covers these couple of decades and then, um, you know, the Miami sort of nineties to today is not something that he really focuses on because it's not kind of his music. It's not, you know, the, the stuff that he identifies with. And so we're going to, this episode is going to focus on up until the nineties. And then a next episode will focus on the nineties to today because, in some ways that's the point when Miami stopped being so Cuban dominant and became much more of like a Latino, like multicultural um, Mm -hmm. hub. Right. I mean, if you see that right with your family, like so many of your family members are now in Miami, which is like new, right. right? In the last like 10 years, there's like a lot of Venezuelans in Miami, five years. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this guy, for whatever reason, ended up in Venezuela doing music stuff. And then he actually got banned. It was like not totally clear why, but for some reason he got banned. So then he went to Cuba and he was in Havana before the revolution. Yeah. I don't know what I, I could have, I didn't like dig into it enough to understand what was Mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, so yeah, he was in Cuba and then I couldn't actually figure out where he ended up after the revolution. Um, But my father says that this song was really um, a prominent song that a lot of people listened to and also covered in the 60s and it was very much part of this like nostalgia era and so you know I think something that's maybe different about the Cuban migration than other migrations potentially or maybe not that different is that people left thinking they weren't gonna stay like they were like we're gonna go to Miami for maybe even a couple of months until like really until the Americans take Castro down and then we'll go back right and and there was a very clear like American um, attempt right the Bay of Pigs was that was supposed to be the American invasion of Cuba that was going to take down Castro and then the Russians threatened nuclear war and then they were like okay never mind (laughs) and so um so yeah people came and not planning on staying and I think that's important because I feel like it shapes like how people relate to a place like this is my new home versus like this is where I'm hanging out for a little while until I can go back home you know um and I don't know better for you for like if Venezuelans you feel like people are are like, um, this is my home now, or they're like hoping that they can wait out 
what's happening in Venezuela and go back? Um, I think the early people thought that they could wait it out. Yeah. And I mean, some people, I think, yeah, like, I think that as time goes on, less and less people feel like they can wait it out. But there are a lot of people who think that they're just like, you know, like waiting it out. So, you know, like a similar, like, like placing a really misguided hope in the U.S. invasion as if that ever turns out well in Latin America. Right, I know. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there is some of that. I think it's less and less, but there, there has been, um, some of that, which has been interesting, like, uh, is interestingly for me, um, some of where like difficulty with political engagement with that community is in the United right. States because they just only care about what it will mean for going Venezuela. back to Venezuela. Right. right. Which has also um, shaped Cuban American politics too. It's like all they care about is the like president's position on Cuba, which is why there's right. like, this weird and marriage. It's between, like, and it's yeah. also like this very, which I think is a similar dynamic with Cubans, um, like a, an elite group of people who think that they can go back to their like nice, like mm-hmm. middle class or wealthy lives that they had before yeah. this time. And like where like all the pores were in their place. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like there was a long time. I think somebody still probably has the deed to my grandfather's house in Cuba as if like that means anything now, you know, like as if somebody could go back and reclaim it or something like it's just, you know, this sort of myth of like, yeah, re regaining what was lost. And I think that's, you know, the Cubans who came early in the early days were Cubans with privilege, Cubans with political ties. So they had to leave because they were, you know, kind of under threat if they stayed um, Cubans with big businesses, but they left without, they weren't allowed to take anything with them. You weren't allowed to take your money. You couldn't take much stuff. You definitely couldn't take your you know, property with you. So, you know, the sixties in, in Miami, you know, even if the Cubans had like class privilege, they didn't have any of access to like actual wealth. And so it really shaped, you know, what people could do or not do um, when it came to like rebuilding a life in Miami. But they did have a lot of privilege in terms of um, an immediate path to citizenship, which only only Obama was the one who finally ended that. So it's been the case for, you know, 50 years. And also in the early days, there were like small business loans and like English classes and like all of this shit. And so I actually wrote an, an article like years ago about sort of like the success of Cuban Americans in the U.S. It was like an argument, like almost a conservative argument for like being more generous toward immigrants because Cubans like lower poverty rates. Like there's all these statistics about Cuban Americans doing better um, economically and all these different things in the U S and it's like, well, yeah, if you give immigrants all of this help when they get here and a path to citizenship, like they're going to succeed, you know, but obviously that was like politically motivated. It didn't have anything to do with Cubans. It was just kind of a fuck you to Castro, you know? Um, Okay, so the Miami people showed up to was not anything like the Miami today. I mean, it was a much smaller city. It has a whole history. You know, it was colonized by the Spanish. The English had it for a while. Then the U.S. had it. There was a native population. There was displacement, like all of that. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it was a, a somewhat a small city. Um, it was a very tourist-focused city, a lot of, like, winter tourism. Um, and so, you know, it changed a lot. And there was a lot of racism, despite the fact that, this is interesting, I didn't realize this, but in the early 1900s, Miami was, like, 40% black african-american and, and bahamian people from ba- ba- the bahamas mm. yeah um but it was super segregated right there were only certain places that black folks could live there was some like harlem renaissance ties in miami which i think was interesting um but uh but yeah so when the cubans showed up and like the numbers i saw are pretty wild like within 15 years 
500,000 Cubans had immigrated to Miami. Like that's an, Damn. that's an incredible amount of people. And the city yeah, it's itself changed the vibe of a city. Yeah. And the city itself didn't even have that many people. And so I don't think right. everybody stayed in the city of Miami, but even in like the, the Miami Dade, like County, like the broader area. Um, but yeah, that's going to change the landscape. But people talk about it. My mom talks about this, that when they got to Cuba, when they got to Miami, there were signs in like businesses and in um, residential areas that said no blacks, no Jews, no Cubans, no dogs. So you can kind of get a sense of like the racism in Miami (laughs) um, that people were facing, like all sort of this whole group of people being lumped together. And um, yeah, I read that one of the mayors in the 20s was like an open KKK member. So it was. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like it was kind of a hostile environment. And you bring such a massive group of people and they really start to change the culture um, in a really direct way. And so, you know, there were musicians who left, obviously, in the in this migration. But, you you know, you leave without money. You can't just all of a sudden start, you know, your career, your music career over in Miami. So it took a while for people to start making music again. Um and so in the in the beginning, it was a lot of just like n- like this nostalgic music is what my father says. And that there were like concerts, but the concerts were mostly just like people playing old music, <clears throat> you know, from the pre-revolution days. And then some of this kind of nostalgic stuff. And there wasn't much that was like being made itself. And so um, this song, this next song we're going to listen to is like the beginning of like a local music scene in Miami among like Latinx people. So among Cubans, there were like rap has some connections to Miami, like hip hop. Like there are other genres that have some roots in Miami. Vanilla Ice. Do you guys remember what's from Miami? Um, oh my but, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'd forgotten about him, but I'm focusing on like Latinx community specifically. So let's take a listen to um, a song that y'all might recognize, but a different take on it. It's called Sabor a Mi and it's by Coke. Coke or if they say coke, <laughs> I would assume it'd be coke. <laughs> but you know, the maybe not because the so these folks, these are Cuban American young people who, you know, were brought to probably brought to the U.S. as young children and then have grown up in Miami. And so I don't know much of what they're doing is this fusion between um, the traditional music that they grew up with and then rock, essentially rock and roll. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't actually know. I'd have to ask my father because we emailed about it. So I didn't hear how he pronounced it. Um, so yeah, he's the his, his chapter is the one that like pointed me to this. There's not a group that I'd ever heard of, and I don't think that they had any. Like it took a while for anybody in this community to get attention musically outside of the community in Miami, like as an insular community in many ways. Um, and so this is a cover of this classic song by Ed, Eddie Gourmet that we've brought before, but you can kind of hear their unique like take on it. <clears throat> what did you think of the sort of fusion sound, Vero? It was interesting. It was cool. I feel like I don't think I've heard of this version of Saorami. Um, yeah, I don't think that anybody, this is not, this is like very niche, like only people who are like particularly interested in looking into like the Cuban rock bands of the 70s in Miami would like know about this. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it's not, this is like a deep cut for deep sure. Cuts. Deep Thank cuts. you for bringing the deep cuts to the show. You know, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, got to thank my father for that one. But, um, but yeah, I think it's interesting to, to think about those kids. Right. And like, you know, I think in some ways, like they're the generation that was like, okay, I will, you know, mommy and papi, like, Nick, I know you think we're going to go back to Cuba, but like, this is my life now, you know, like I live in Miami and I'm going to school in Miami and I'm like, you know, I'm a Cuban American, like this is a part of me now too. And so, um, then you start to think about how that influences people's musical taste. And that's like kind of what we start to see here is like an attempt to bridge the two and to yeah be imp- Im- impacted by the influences of this era but also still be tied to your to your roots mm-hmm. so yeah this For is sure. from ni- 1970 and then you know you get another big wave of immigration to miami in this decade with people from nicaragua and then people from haiti um, and there is a neighborhood called little haiti in miami mm-hmm. And there's also like a couple of, you know, there's some famous Nicaraguan restaurants we used to go to when I was a kid, but there's still, you know, it's like maybe 150,000 people from these two places, but still vastly outnumbered by the Cubans. And, you know, at this point, Cubans are also starting to like have businesses and like really kind of shape the culture of this part of Miami, particularly like the Southwest part of Miami, which is like what's considered the, the, the like little, where little Havana is and, and all of that. So, yeah. Okay. So the next song we're going to listen to is, you know, so there's like these young people who are like, you know, trying to fusion things and think about like, what does Cuban American identity in some ways look like through the music? Like, how do we bring Mm -hmm. these two things together? But then there were still people. Classic immigrant experience. Yeah, totally. And then there's still people who are very much like, we're going to keep with the traditional, like what is Mm -hmm. traditional Cuban music? Like we're Mm going to kind of just recreate what was happening in Cuba. And so this is an example of that. And this song is called Una Rumba en Mi Barrio, and it's by Conjunto Impacto. Let's take a listen. Conjunto impacto formó 
so this is a Cuban orchestra that was formed in Miami, but that, you know, for all we know, it could be from Cuba. You know, like it just sounds very um, traditional in that way. And, you know, I think one thing that's unique about the Cuban sort of immigrant experience in the diaspora in the U.S. is like, there was a, there's no back and forth, right? Like people either leave or they stay, but there's no flow to Mm -hmm. and from Cuba because that's what happened with um, both the embargo and also like Castro's policies. Like Cubans weren't allowed to freely travel to and from Cuba for the majority of his um, kind of reign. It's only very recently they've been able to travel even somewhat freely. And so, you know, like you think about Dominicans in New York or Puerto Ricans in New York, like there's a there's a back and forth, right? There's like yeah, a way yeah. in which culture and flows music back and is forth. really affected <clears throat> by that back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Like we talked about the history of reggaeton, right? And it was like mm-hmm. brought back to Puerto Rico from you know, and so with Cuba, there's none of that. And so you know, musicians from Cuba can't come and perform in Miami. Musicians from Miami can't go and perform in Cuba. Like it's just despite the fact that it's so close, you know, geographically, there's this like my father called it like a instead of an iron curtain like a water curtain or something um but you know so i think that's also just like it means that you know the cuban american culture is very distinct even maybe more so than might be the case for other diaspora communities because there's so little mm, engagement yeah, there's such a forth. level of separation yeah and that's changed now like in the last couple decades um cuban musicians can like perform in the u.s and they have more freedom it's still hard to go the other way um, but that has happened. There have been some um, Cuban Americans who've gone and performed in in Cuba. But so there's more back and forth now. But you know, you were talking about like 40, 50 years where there's basically no exchange except yeah, people defecting and leaving Cuba. Um, so yeah, it's just like a particularly mm-hmm. unique thing. Um, so in terms of like the Miami music scene, the Latin Miami music scene, you know, my father points out there's a turning point in 1979 when this radio station started called Super Cool which I remember listening to as a kid um, that became this platform for Cuban American artists in Miami because it was a local radio station that was Mm, run by Cubans. Yeah. So would you describe this as what genre? Because to me, when I listen to this, I hear salsa, but you said, you know, like the groups were like, you know, doing standards and that like, you know, like salsa was a New York city invention, but then this is in 1978, which is sort of like the peak of the creation of salsa. And these guys started in New York. So like, I'm interested in how you place this. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I'm describing it the way that my father described it in the book in terms of how he saw this music. And so I don't know how much of a relationship there would be. I mean, I think that in some ways, like salsa in the 70s in New York City sounds a lot like a traditional Cuban big band orchestra, you know? like the, Yeah, the, I mean, it sort right? of came out of son. That's right? what it, it came sort from. It came out of yeah. son. But I'm, yeah. I was just curious what you would describe this as. Because w- if I were to d- listen to this, I'd be like, that's a salsa. And if I were yeah. to dance to it, I would dance to it like salsa. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's what I would say, too. That's what I would say, too. I know that, like, so there, you know, <clears throat> a little bit later on, like, in the 80s, 90s, like, Salsa Romantica becomes, like, a huge mm-hmm. genre. And I was trying to yeah, figure absolutely. out if there were, like, any ties to Miami. And I couldn't find any sort of in terms of the artists themselves. But, like, it's likely that a lot of them recorded in Miami. Like, Miami becomes, over time, like, a place, a music industry center, too. Um, not just New York. But I don't, It's it was harder to trace that. Like, I didn't go into, like, looking into the 
you know, the albums and like where they were recorded and where the studio is located, you know? And it's, I mean, part of the question of this is like, what does it mean to look at like the music of Miami? Like what is Miami sound? Are we trying to talk about, is, is there a Miami sound? Or are we, are we just trying to say like with New York, it was very clear. It wasn't like about a New York sound. It was like, how has New York city impacted music, Latinx music? Right. Like what what was born in New York City. Right. But like it's not necessarily I mean, you can't. Is there a New York City sound? I don't know. Do you feel like there's a bazillion New York City sounds, you know, like as many communities as there are. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, Miami. Yeah, there's definitely lots of Miamis. Right. And I'm talking about a very specific Miami, although Mm -hmm. it it becomes the majority of Miami for a long time. Um, um, But yeah, you know, this idea of a Miami sound, you know, it's it's hard to say. So like when we think about this topic, it's like, well, what, what argument can you make about the impact of Miami on this music? And while it's, you know, it's very clear, like geographically, there's an impact of these people being together in this place, um, being displaced to this place, you know, migrating to this place and then collaborating from that um, experience. But I don't know that, yeah, you can say that there's like a Miami sound. Um, and I don't know how much what was happening in New York, you know, impacted. I mean, I, the next people we're going to listen to after we take a quick break they actually started in New York <clears throat> and then they went to Miami. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's mm-hmm. gotta be some flow in relationship, but, um, yeah, but it does feel like there's two things happening at the same time. And I don't know the connection, which is like, yeah, what's happening in the seventies and in salsa and then what's going on in Miami. Yeah. So let's take a quick break to talk about our birthday. It's our birthday. Hey. Usually I make us play that birthday reggaeton that I really like, <laughs> but we haven't done it yet. <laughs> your favorite by Yandari Yostin. Yes, Yandari Yostin. Who I only know because of your birthday uh-huh. reggaeton fandom. Yeah, I always it's always what I what I play. Um but yeah, we're six this month, y'all. It's almost actually like to the day, I think, sometime in the later in this week. It's like six years to the day since we started. Yeah, it's really super wild. And to celebrate, we are having a little special promo for our membership program. Yeah, so we're kind of pulling like an NPR and like just talking to you a lot about it during our birthday month, like our membership drive, (laughs) Um, instead of talking to you about it all year long. Um, So yeah, for five, 10 or $15 a month, it's kind of like a Patreon style thing, but really like about a sliding scale, um, you can support us um, and support the show. And it makes a huge difference. It allows us to cover our costs and do things like Bay Maite to edit, which really helps us to focus more on content development. And you also get a members-only segment on every episode. Yeah, and we are also, because it's our birthday, um, doing a little special promo where if you sign up to be a member during the month of March, you will get a poster that is has been in our tiendita. You can buy it, but we'll just gift it to you. Inspired by the 70s in New York City, right? Yeah. So the aesthetic of the poster is inspired by like salsa, um, salsa concert advertisement posters um, in the 70s. And um, the text on it is sort of Bad Bunny inspired. He, um, you know, the menos violencia, mas perreos, Bad Bunny slash more actually feminist movements in Latin America inspired, um, who, um, led Bad Bunny to sort of make, um, that declaration, um, Mm -hmm. after lots of protests against violence against women. So if you're a member of our show, um, this episode, you would get access to a special member segment about gringos interacting with Santeria in awkward ways. 
Um, so, you know, just to give you a little teaser of what you might be missing out on if you are not a member. So something to consider if you can swing it. We really, really appreciate it. And um, it would be a great happy birthday to us. Gracias, gracias. What do you have next for us, Paris? <clears throat> All right. So this is a group that we brought before um, to the Engaño episode because they have like a love triangle song, but this is a different <laughs> song by them. They're a Cuban-American duo, Hansel y Raul, and this is song is called Ponme la Mano Caridad. Let's take a listen. that like was super successful in Miami and like I think in the Cuban American community but I don't feel like has like reached outside of that bubble um mm. I don't know are you, are you familiar with them have you heard of them before no no not really no yeah. I mean I think that I recognize them from you bringing them but yeah. I don't yeah not outside of of that yeah which is interesting and I think maybe part of the reason this is possible is because so the Cuba Cubans are one of the least geographically diverse immigrant groups in the country 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard of that. Yeah, I think I've said it before, and I don't know if it's still true, but I know it, it was true. It, it was like the most, it was the least geographically diverse group in the country. I don't know if that's still true, but um, you know, pretty much like ninety something percent of Cubans in the U.S. are in Miami or Union City, New Jersey, and like the vast majority are in Miami. And so, I think in some ways that like per- makes it more possible for for a group to be so successful in such a small area because there's such a dominant community that you can you know who are going to sell your shows and buy your albums and whatever and you don't need to be necessarily successful outside of that versus like an immigrant community that's more dispersed around the country um which sometimes is done is a political decision right like when people are resettled here the government the u.s government decides where to put people you know and i think they purposely mm-hmm. don't settle people all in the same place so you know it, it really distributes um a community in a particular way but for whatever the reason the cubans were able to do it they weren't resettled by a refugee agency they just came to um to miami so um so anyway yeah i mean these guys have 11 albums like i definitely grew up knowing who they were but i don't feel like most people would know who they are outside of outside of miami even people who like listen to latinx music or like salsa or however you would classify their music um they started out in New York, actually, like I said, but uh, but went to Miami in 1980, and that's where like they had all their success. And they are both Cuban as well. So this song is from 1984. Awesome. All right, all right so now we're getting into sort of like Miami. Miami Latin music starts to like leave Miami and like make 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 waves or like pierce like outside we've said outside of uh-huh. outside of the very insular community yeah exactly so like okay now we're gonna start talking about some people who yeah who make it big outside of miami uh-huh. um and so we're gonna start with a song by the miami sound machine which um is gloria stefan the group that gloria stefan was headlining before she became a solo act and this song is called dr beat and it's also from 1984 let's take a listen Gloria needs medical attention for her beat <laughs> <laughs> worries. Her I know it's kind of woes. cheesy. It's kind of cheesy. Um, it's kind of cheesy. Did you recognize the song? Do you think you ever heard it? Yeah, I know this okay. song. Yeah. So I, Congo was their biggest sort of like mainstream hit, but we just Veto just brought it for our, our Latin Booms episode, and so I didn't want to bring it again. Um, interestingly, Conga has a much more Latin 
sound to it, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah, this is definitely very 80s pop. Yeah, yeah. And so my father has some interesting like analysis of this in in his chapter in that book because you know, he argues that at the beginning, like um, the Miami Sound Machine wasn't like a Latin band um, mm-hmm. and that they didn't have like a particularly Latin sound. But conga was this moment of like, I mean, it's it's a it's a song about a Latin dance written for a non-Latin audience, right? Like you're they're teaching yeah. someone, they're teaching white people essentially, like white Americans how to dance the conga. And so, um, you know, he I think argues that it was like trying to sort of take advantage of a particular moment, but in some ways, like it made the moment. You know, I don't know. I'm just gonna think back to like what you were talking about in Latin booms, like. That this song itself, or was this kind of in the like in between period, like between? Yeah, sort of in between. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's so hard to say. I mean, the the group before Miami Sound Machine, it was actually called the Miami Latin Boys, and that was Emilio Estefan's group, um, who mm. then became Gloria's husband. And so you know, it's not like they were pretending not to be Latin, right? Like that was in the name itself. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they talk a little bit about their own relationship to like a Latin identity. Um, but he, you know, he said that it was sort of like a, an attempt to cross over was like taking on this more like heavily Latin identity and like sort of self-exoticizing in some way in order to um, speak to an American audience. I think that's like an interesting argument. Yeah. I make. mean, it's sort of what we talked about in the Latin booms episodes where we talked about sort of like Latin booms as... Um, this attempt to sort of water down Latin sound, traditional Latin sound for white American mainstream right. consumption, and but, but a- still remaining exotic, right? right? So like I think that like so when we brought Gonga to that set of episodes, it was like sort of like within that framework, like it wasn't part of like a, a specific boom moment. It was sort of like in between, but it was still fit into sort of that conception of how. Um, how Latin rhythms pierce the American mainstream. Right. But yeah, but sort of like he's almost arguing the opposite, right? Which is that rather than watering down their Latin sound, they like turned it up a notch in order to like sort of like meet some sort of American desire or whatever for like this exotic Latin music. Mm, So fascinating. So So I don't know. You know, it's like we'd have to talk to Gloria, right? Like about what she thinks about and maybe (laughs) hopefully someday we will. Like that's my hope. So we'll get to interview her. But um. But yeah, I mean, so Gloria was born in Cuba, um, but she was two. So she's part of this generation of, you know, young people who were born in Cuba, but but raised in Miami. And so, again, it's like, what is authenticity in their in their identity formation? Like, it's both like they're American and they're Cuban, like they're living in these two worlds. And so to say that one version of themselves is more authentic than the other, I think is like it's always not fair to say, to tell them who they are or like also to ascribe, you know, a particular meaning to what they were trying to do. So I, you know, I don't really know, um, the answer, but, um, one thing that he says that I do think is kind of interesting is that like Gloria is a very, um, she's like not too sexual, right? Like she's like this like Latin sort of, um, beautiful woman, but she's not like the keeper kind of in this, like, somewhat sanitized place so so he describes yeah, her as yeah. like she's not like a you know like a sex bomb or anything no like that. no she's not yeah so it's not like too sexual um but just sort of exotic and sexual enough so he's written a lot about i love lucy and so he what he says in the book is if desi was the latin lover as good neighbor gloria is the latin bombshell next door 
Mm-hmm. Which I yeah. felt like that kind of story. I mean, I don't know. He was a little bit of like a womanizer, but they kind of make it like seem funny on the show, right? Like they don't, they kind of like make him, they make a joke out of his like, him being sort of like machista. So, but yeah, I don't know. So it's all just like questions about like what it, what it meant and what the decisions were behind this, this move, you know, that they made. And Emilio's a little bit older. So he spent more of his um, childhood in Cuba. And then Gloria came from a legacy of Cuban musicians. Her mother was a singer in Cuba. So mm, it's I not, didn't know that. yeah, yeah. Gloria. I mean, sorry. What was her mother's name? I remember her last name was Fajardo. I don't remember what her first name was. Um, so, you know, is it less or more authentic for her to be leaning into something that's more Latin? I don't know. Um, but this is the beginning of a, like a major, major career for her. Um, and she becomes, you know, they sort of like the Miami sound machine as a brand way kind of like withers away as she gets more popular and just becomes Gloria Stefan. as like a solo act. Although she still has obviously accompanying musicians with her. Um, it just, they just start to market it based on just her and, you know, they are called the Miami Sound Machine. So are they arguing, you know, are they saying they're bringing the Miami Sound to the mainstream? And then what, again, what is a Miami Sound? You know, like, what does that even mm-hmm. mean? Okay, so the last song we're going to bring, I'm going to bring for this episode um, is another, I mean, they're all Cuban-American musicians. Um, and this is uh, Willy Chirino. And this song is called Un Tipo Tipico. And it's from 1989. Let's take a listen. Y lo 
this is an interesting one, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like listened to the first few seconds. I was like, okay, I got, I got what it, I, I got this, the, the general idea. But this is like, no, you do not have the general <laughs> yeah. idea. You gotta keep going. <laughs> yeah, it's a real like switch up. Um, so Willie Chidino, a little sudden Jimi Hendrix in there. So you know, Willie Chidino is part of this generation of kids who came to the U.S. as children, and um, and then you know were kind of finished out their adolescence in Miami and so it's again this question of like bridging two cultures which he very clearly tries to do in this song by like going back and forth between this like very Cuban sounding music to like Jimi Hendrix um this was one of his hits I don't know what do you think Beto did it like does it work this like back and forth um <laughs> not for me <laughs> yeah 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 I mean I like, I've gotta be yeah. honest it's like it was a pretty like on a dime transition yeah. that was a little all over the place like, yeah for my little, taste it's a little unexpected it's a little unexpected I remember this song but I'm not as big of a fan of like the the Jimi Hendrix interludes as I am like the actual song you know the not the actual song the parts of the song that are his his music um but I grew up with a ton of his music. I mean, he, and there's like posters of him on the wall in my parents' homes. And like this, he was a big, I think, um, you know, he was a peer essentially. Like he was very similar age to my parents. And so, um, you know, he's, he's speaking, singing about an experience that very much mirrors theirs. He was actually one of the Peter Pan kids. Are you familiar with this program? Um, Zero? No, I am not. Yeah. So the Pedro Pan kids, they were um, 14,000 kids who got sent left got sent from Cuba by themselves without their parents um, to the U.S. alone. It was like a, a partnership between the Catholic Church and the U.S. government that allowed people if they wanted to send their kids to the U.S., um, but they themselves couldn't or didn't weren't able to leave yet. They could do it through this Pedro Pan program. And it was like, you know, understandably very traumatic for a lot of these kids because they were sent yeah. to a new country without family. <clears throat> and, you know, fostered by other families and whatever. I mean, most of them were reunited with their families. Eventually they left Cuba too. But, um, but yeah, it kind of got a lot of like political attention. Um, Operation mm-hmm. Pedro Pan. Um, and the reason they did that is that there was a fear that kids were going to be um, taken from their families by the U.S., the Cuban government and or sent to like cut cane in the countryside um, if they were like from Havana, which is why my my mother and her sisters actually left on their own, but not through Pedro Pan, but through, um, they were sent to family who were already in, in the U S but their parents stayed behind and then they were reunited mm, like nine months later. Yeah. So there was this real fear of kids of a certain age being, um, cause huh. all the schools were closed and then nationalized. And so that was sort of the sense of like what's happening to our children. Yeah. Um, so yeah, his song, I mean, Willie Chino's career started way before this song, but I wanted to bring it because it does this sort of like attempt at merging these like American and, and Cuban rhythms. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's a 20 album career. He's kind of still going. Um, but I, again, I don't know how much did he leave, how much did his success um, include success outside of the Cuban American community? Do you remember if you knew who he was before? Me in this podcast? Yeah. You did. I think, yeah, I knew who Lichi Dino was. Okay. I think he's fairly big outside okay. of so he, Cuban. I world. think he might be the, like, besides Gloria, I think he's the kind of the one that has made a big name for himself um, and has been successful enough to, to, yeah, like, get outside of the Cuban community. I don't always know because I'm like, well, I know who he is, but I don't know what other people Right, know. right. <laughs> how would you <laughs> know? <laughs> like, how would I? Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like my friends in North Carolina certainly didn't know who Willie Chino was. <laughs> like, there's definitely no, nobody there knew. Um, 
but yeah so that's kind of like the first couple of decades of of cuban miami um in terms of, of music there's a lot more obviously that like you can't go get into every detail but i wanted to kind of bring a few of the the more representative um groups yeah yeah and we have a whole other episode from when Miami becomes sort of the capital of Latin America mm-hmm. <laughs> era yeah. of of Latin music. Yeah, so which is still very tuned. like Cuban dominated, but start to see some people outside of, of Cuba um, making names for themselves. Yep. All right, y'all. Well, thank you for listening to this deep dive. Um, it's very personal to me, obviously, because this is like so much of my family history is this, this time in Miami in specific. And like, so... Um, thank you for coming along with me and definitely check out uh, my father's book, which I'll link in the show notes if you want to know more about this um, this community and this time period. As always, everything from this episode is going to be in the show notes. So any song info, anything we mentioned, you can find links there. Make sure you're following us on social media. We have a newsletter that goes out every Friday. You can find the link to that in our show notes as well. Um, and thank you so much for listening. Hasta la próxima, y'all. See you next week. Se ha ido el manicero y también la valla mesa. Guajiro de mi tierra, si pasas por la barba, no irás risa cubana porque el sol se puede hallar.